0: You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. We ended last week with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The people welcomed Him as the King of Israel. But this actually isn't the first time they've looked at Him as a King. If you think back to chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000 The Jews were ready then and there to take him by force and make him their king. But Jesus disappeared. He removed himself from the situation completely because it wasn't yet his time. But here, as he enters Jerusalem, he lets their kingly welcome stand. That's because this is the beginning of the end. Even the Pharisees feel the significance of the moment because they declare in 1210, Look, the world has gone after him. It seems a little dramatic. Has the whole world really gone after Jesus? Well, no. There's obviously some who don't believe. But as we move into verse 20 this morning, we find that their words are truer than even they know. And here at the end of chapter 12, we have the parting words of Jesus to an unbelieving people. The rest of his teaching leading up to the crucifixion will be reserved for his disciples in private. But this passage today is his parting words to a people who call him king, but do not truly understand what they're saying. And in these words, we seem to have summaries of some of the biggest themes of John's gospel. We have the call to follow, the will of the Father, light versus darkness, blindness and unbelief, and judgment. This morning, we'll highlight four reminders about Jesus's identity and purpose. Four reminders about his identity and purpose. So would you begin reading with me in John 12, verse 20? It says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There is a cost to following Jesus. Remember, we're in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. There are hundreds of thousands of people swarming into the city for this one event. And not only are the Jews there, but apparently there's some others as well. We have mentioned in these verses some Greeks. This likely doesn't mean they're actually from Greece. Rather, it means they're Greek-speaking or Gentiles. They weren't Jewish people. It's not surprising that they're there because we see in the Gospels and even in the Old Testament that there are some non-Jewish people that believe and worship the God of the Jews. The temple in Jerusalem had a section specifically for those people called the Court of the Gentiles where they could come and learn and worship. And so we have a group of these Greeks that request to see Jesus. We don't know if they did actually meet with him face to face or not, but we do have Jesus' spoken response to their request. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Now that's significant. Ever since chapter 2, when Mary told Jesus the wedding couple had run out of wine, Jesus' response has always been, My hour has not yet come. We've seen that phrase over and over again, but now all of a sudden the hour is now here. So this request of the Greeks seems to signal to Jesus that his hour has finally arrived. And the hour has now come for him to be glorified. And that can only happen one way, by him dying. That's the illusion in verse 24. In order for that grain of wheat to be of any use, it must die and be buried in the ground. But if it does, then it can bear much more fruit. The fruit can come only after death. This is a foreshadowing of what will soon happen. Jesus will die and be buried, but he won't stay buried in the ground. He will rise again to be glorified and bear eternal fruit for multitudes. And whether Jesus is talking to these Greeks or just speaking out loud in general, he gives the criteria necessary to partake in this fruit. He gives the requirements for following him, reminding us that there is a cost to following him. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is Jesus saying there? He's talking about life and love and hate and eternity. This sounds like something important to understand, so what is he saying? Let's just start with the first phrase. Whoever loves his life loses it who in this gospel so far would fit into that category? I think of the Pharisees. They love this life. Their role in authority and power is everything to them. Their main concern with the whole Jesus situation is that they could lose their position in authority. They love this life. I also think of the crowds in Galilee that abandoned Jesus. They were all on the Jesus bandwagon when he was giving them a buffet of fish and bread, but when he starts saying things that don't add up with their ideas of a Messiah, they walk away. They preferred what this life could offer them. We already know Judas will be another one. He's going to betray Jesus for a bag of money. He certainly loves this life more. All those people will lose their life because they love this life. Losing your life means loving the things of this world, the comforts, the pleasures, the joys possessions of this world as if they will last forever, as if they are the most important things. It's basic idolatry. It's making temporary things into ultimate things. And I know most people, myself included, hear that and think, oh, I would never do that. I would never place all my hopes and dreams in this world. But at the same time, our life can often reflect a different reality. We actually do have the tendency to Find our identity in our career, our possessions, our home, our family, our country. Jesus is warning us that it's very easy to surround ourselves with all, these, all the good things that life has to offer. It's a warning not to spend our lives as if this life is the only one we have. It's a warning not to live this life like the world around us does. And the ultimate tragedy is that you can pad this life into the most comfortable, enjoyable, 70, 80, 90 years possible, while at the same time, missing out on eternal life altogether. And the opposite, though, is to hate this life. This is a little different use of the word hate than we normally use. This means the willingness to reject and deny this life for the life Jesus offers us. Sometimes this will be really hard. Maybe oftentimes it will be difficult to follow Jesus in this world. And that's what requires us to hate this life, to despise it. It may cost you popularity. It may cost you friends or social status or even family relationships. It may cost you a job promotion or a raise. It may cost you comfort. And even those things don't really seem that serious. When I Think of believers around the world who are forced to hate their life even right now on a Sunday morning by going to church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are endangering their lives by even owning a Bible. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are risking their livelihoods by meeting together to read God's word. They are actively hating this life in this world in order to keep it for eternal life. And here I am comfortably in South Alabama complaining about the humidity and having to wear a mask and not being able to eat inside at Chick-fil-A. But hating this life means our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. We choose Jesus over everything this world has to offer. The criteria for eternal life is to lose this life here and now. We die to self then in verse 26, the criteria for serving Jesus is to follow him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That sounds easy enough until you consider where Jesus is going. Where is Jesus heading? He's heading to the cross. He's saying, follow me, fully knowing where he's going. He isn't saying, follow me and I'll make your all your problems go away. Follow me and I'll give you wealth and health and happiness Instead, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. It's a call to die to this life, to the things the world can offer. It's a call to abandon everything for the sake of following Christ. That's where the tragic irony is in chapter 12. Jesus enters into Jerusalem welcomed like a king. Thousands of people are cheering him on. He has crowds of fans, but very few followers. This is a warning for us. We've seen in John that not all belief is true belief. Many people came to Jesus to get things from him, whether that was a healing or influence or hopefully freedom from Rome. They came to him for what he could give them rather than coming to him to get more of him. And when they found out that there was a social cost and maybe even a physical cost to following him, they abandoned him. The warning for us is to count the cost, to know what the requirements are for following him. And we do that with the hope that Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now let's pick up back in verse 27. Jesus continues, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus perfectly obeys the Father. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus showed that his number one priority and concern was doing the will of the Father. No one could compete with that. It didn't matter if it was the crowd, his disciples, his friends, the Roman authorities, the Pharisees, or even his own mother. No one had any ounce of sway or influence over him. His sole focus was to do the will of God. And we see that re-emphasized here in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. Why is Jesus' soul troubled? Because he knows what's coming. He knows his appointment with the cross is near. He knows the agony of that excruciating pain and humility that awaits him. Similar to his prayer in the Gospel of Mark, Father, take this cup from me. He asks, Father, save me from this hour. But his soul is most troubled because here the agony of what lies ahead meets his unwavering commitment to the Father's will. That's why as soon as he raises the question of deliverance, he immediately follows up resolutely with, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Even with the terrible prospect of crucifixion ahead of him, Jesus still submits to the will of the Father. He gives the Father all authority over his life. And his chief concern is that the name of God would be glorified. Jesus was incredibly passionate about the glory of God. Everything was about bringing glory to his name, no matter what it cost him. And do we have the same passion to see God's glorified in our lives? Many people usually think of God's glory as something that comes after something good happens. Like, God, I give you all the glory that my football team won the championship. God, I give you all the glory for that raise I just got. God, I give you all the glory for getting into the college of my choice or getting that car I've always wanted. We treat his glory more like an add-on when instead God's glory should be the primary factor in every action and decision we make. We should certainly give him glory when good things happen. Though, We should also live in such a way that His glory is our chief aim. It is our chief motivation in everything. We wake up saying, God, be glorified in my life today. God, glorify yourself through me in whatever way you see fit, whether it brings me worldly success and happiness or not. Use me for your glory. That's the heartbeat of Jesus and should be for those that follow him as well. And in response to this declaration by Jesus, a voice thunders from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God has already been glorified through the life of Christ, through his words and teachings and miracles, but he'll glorify it again in a way that surpasses everything by lifting up Jesus. This lifting up refers both to the manner of his death on the cross and also to his glorification in his resurrection And that will result in two things. First, the ruler of the world, of this world, will be cast out. The ancient promise from Genesis chapter 3 will be fulfilled. The descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus will crush Satan. No doubt it'll seem like a victory to Satan, seeing the Son of God murdered and humiliated on the cross like a criminal. But his victory will be temporary. For Jesus will rise again and cast out the ruler of this world. And the second result is that he will draw all people to himself. This isn't referring to drawing all people without exception. We've seen clearly there are people blinded in darkness who do not come and who are not drawn. But this means all people without distinction. What Jesus does on the cross will open the way for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be drawn to the Savior. And that includes you and me right here in the U.S. of A. He's accomplishing so much more than anyone could have imagined. And it's all for the glory of the Father. Let's pick back up now in verse 37. It says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Reminder number three, salvation is only granted by God. Salvation is only granted by God. We saw this theme early on in chapter 3 as Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about the new birth. This new birth isn't something man made. It's not something humans can manufacture or replicate. Salvation is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit and God removing the blindness. And we, some, we see some get so close to seeing the truth, yet they're still completely in darkness. Verse 42 and 43 are absolutely tragic. Some did believe Jesus was the Messiah. They saw the signs he was doing, the words he was saying. They they had no doubt, but they didn't confess it out of fear. And the real reason John tells us is because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This goes back to counting the cost. They see the truth, but they also see what it will cost them. It could cost them position and status and money and possessions And the cost is too high for their fragile faith. They're too in love with the things of this world to truly follow Christ. The Apostle Paul gives us a great example of the opposite response, though. Before his conversion, Paul had everything going for him. He had the best training and instruction as a student. He was flying through the ranks of the religious elite. He was full of zeal and knowledge and perfectly obeyed the law. There was so much he could boast in and be proud of. Consider this, whatever profession you're in, imagine what it would be like to be the best at it, for people to be looking at you as if you are the future of your profession. You are gifted, you're praised, you're guaranteed a lifetime of success and power. That was Paul. But in Philippians 3, 7, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's life was turned upside down the moment he encountered Jesus. But he says it was all worth it. Everything he had before he now counts as absolutely worthless when compared to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as his Savior. And I pray that if there's anyone listening to this, that you know who Jesus is, but you've been held captive by what this world has to offer. I pray that today you would see that Jesus is worth giving up anything in this world for. He is worth it all. And now let's finish up with one final reminder, starting in verse 44. It says this, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. reminder number four: Jesus came to save the world. Jesus came to save the world right up to the end of his public ministry. Jesus is still plainly setting forth that salvation is found in believing in Him. Because to believe in Him is to believe in the God who sent Him. And the promise is that if anyone believes in Him, they won't remain in darkness. As 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, He brings us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He opens blind eyes. And verse 47 repeats what we read way back in John 3.17, For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn and judge. He came to save, to lay out salvation to all who would receive him. But one of the reasons he doesn't judge is because he doesn't need to. There's already a judge for those who reject him. He says they'll be judged by the words that he has spoken. The reason that is true is because Jesus tells us he only says what the Father tells him to say. He is perfectly in sync with the Father's will. His words come directly from the Father. So to reject what Jesus says is to reject what God says. They'll have to reckon with God the Father Almighty for their hardness of heart. So all the way up to the end, Jesus is still laying out the terms of salvation to any who will receive it. For nearly three years he has traveled all over Israel, teaching in homes and synagogues, on the mountainside, on the seashore. He's performed countless miracles, healing all kinds of sickness, multiplying food, raising the dead. He has in word, thought, and deed perfectly carried out the Father's will. And we'll see that and he'll see that through to the very end by dying on the cross. But why? I want to remind us here that at the end of Jesus's public ministry, why he has done any of this—it all goes back to John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus does everything he does to glorify the Father. And the Father is glorifying Himself through His incredible story of redemption. That God chooses to place His love and affection on wretched sinners like me, condemned in my sin with no way out. That even while I was still an enemy of God, He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life in order to turn around and give His life as a payment for my sins. He took the punishment that was due for my breaking of God's law. He bore my sin and shame on the cross, and God accepted his perfect sacrifice as payment and forever sealed it by raising Jesus from the dead to reign victoriously forever over death, hell, and the grave. And now for those who receive him and believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That's the magnificent story of redemption that has brought Jesus to this moment. And I pray today that the gospel truth finds fertile ground in your heart. I pray that some of you listening will count the cost for the very first time and fully embrace that Jesus is worth forsaking everything for. And I pray that some of you will be brought out of darkness for the first time today. And in everything, may God be glorified in our lives and use every second that we live to further his name and his kingdom. Amen.